0: Welcome back. It's episode 143 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you, as we always do, from the Streamer Festoon faculty lounge of the Epstein and New School of Law. It's such a party today that we're even allowing Richard to eat sugar. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter and guy who's been rolling this boulder up a hill for a decade now, and I am joined, as always, by the Tom Forkner and Joe Rogers Sr. of the conservative legal movement. That's the most obscure reference I've ever used for that segment. But You guys should be honored because those are the two guys who founded Waffle House. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law At the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration, and fellas, they said we'd never make it. And when I say they, I mean me. The very first episode, the Law Talk podcast, was released February twenty fourth, twenty eleven. We have hit the ten year mark. You guys may be the longest relationship of my life, and I'm going to move on before I think through the implications of that. I. I don't actually know what we talked about on the first show because it, it turns out we don't have the recording, uh, which is to the good, I think, because you guys are, are both well beyond Senate confirmation, but I'm still hanging on by a thread. I'm pretty confident Obamacare was in there because that took up like the first five years or so of the show. But, you know, occasionally people will ask me how the show came together before I came along You guys had done this shtick together a a couple of times on uncommon knowledge, but do you remember the first time that you participated in in a panel or something together publicly? And, And how far back have you known each other?
1: Roy, Troy, I, I hate to be the one to break this to you, but <laughs> we actually did a whole bunch of shows before you with lots of different hosts oh, that we t- that we did oh, test drives with. Uh, you know, there was this one girl named Amy, uh, Amy Barrett, I think was her. Amy Coney, I think, was her name back then. She was not very interesting. And then we tried Neil. We tried so many hosts. But Richard destroyed them all. Richard would not be tamed by any of these hosts until we found you. And for some reason, Troy,
2: you were able to tame both of us. Can I comment on this? (laughs) You may, I have no idea of what John is talking about. (laughs) And not only that, I have no idea when I first met John. There's a legal (laughs) expression, you know, to the time with memory, runneth not back and so forth. Basically, (laughs) he's been a part of my DNA for so long, I can't figure out where he began and where he ended. And that's also of many great friendships, is that you have no idea of how they started. And let's hope that we'll have no idea of how they end by not having them end at all.
0: I feel like John probably knows the first. Because, John, you, you were the younger part yeah, of younger. Richard was probably august by the time you first met him. Do, do you wow. remember
1: that? I have two memories of Richard that he won't remember. The first is I first encountered Richard in my first week of law school because I had uh, Guido Calabresi for torts. He spent much time attacking Richard Epstein in my class. I didn't know who this Epstein <laughs> guy was. But since I wanted to stick it to Guido, I had to know more about this man. And so that's the first time, actually, and I think that's how many uh, people encounter all of us is in our writings or on our podcast. But then I remember, I don't remember when this was or why, but I remember meeting Richard for the first time in his office at the University of Chicago Law School, and he was writing, I think, a weekly column for Forbes or Fortune. But the thing I remember is that Richard was writing the whole thing out on yellow legal pads in handwriting and i remember watching him and he started at the top of the page and he just continued to consume two or three pages straight never stopped never paused never scratched anything out you remember they used to say that mozart when he wrote his symphonies <laughs> never made any corrections every first draft was the final draft so Richard is somewhat like the Mozart of the legal academy. Well,
2: let me say this. I mean, I'm a good fan of Mozart. I can show you some manuscripts which have first and second editions. So, for example, K332, he did rewrite the uh, oh my middle God. movement oh. a little bit. I just want you to understand that. And in the, I will tell you something else. Um, so so Mo- Mozart's a, a
1: mere amateur compared to, no,
2: to Richard? No, no, no. Of course, I mean, but this is a true story. If you look on me and you sort of figure out whom I'm related to most, you always see Mozart The top ten, often in the top five. And so people say, now what's the connection? Well, the connection (laughs) is that Google can't distinguish between Richard A. Epstein, whom you're talking to, and Richard Epstein, who in 1918 put together the Schirmer Book of Mozart sonatas, which from which I learned as a boy. And so the great question about search is this goes back to the Frege distinction between meaning and reference. Google (laughs) may be able to find differences in meanings, but if you have the same name that refers to two different people, you're helpless against it. As to the fact about this, John, when did you go to law school? When did you graduate? Uh, I started in 1989. Well, John, this is all mythic. I've got myself a computer (laughs) called NBI, nothing but initials in 1982. (laughs) I don't know how to write anymore by hand. Uh, From that day on, I only wrote uh, in another direction. Um, What I did do for write-out, for some reason, I still write out my class notes all the time um, by hand. And then they're illegible, so I throw them out um, after I teach the (laughs) class. Uh, So I never save them for next year. I have a standing rule about instruction. If you teach the same class twice, destroy your notes.
1: Really? So it's different every time? Well, yeah, I don't want unlike to get unlike my, our sh- unlike our shows, which seem to repeat over and over again.
2: Well, only on Roman law
1: themes, John. Um, Richard, I I have to tell you,
0: of all the other Epstein's that Google could be confusing you with, I think you got a good one. There's that, <laughs> so there's, do I. There's I mean, plot there. Yeah.
2: I, I, I look. <laughs> uh, the, 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 it's the Jeffrey Epstein's that bother me. Yeah, yeah. In this world. <laughs> Um, there was actually a Richard Epstein who did, was a mathematics and game theorist of some distinction, who wrote
0: a book about gambling that comes yes, up under your name and, often on Amazon. Yeah, and,
2: and really? that book often has been attributed Are you sure to it's not me. the same guy. No, Come it's on, not me. You
1: you masquerade as a mathematician.
0: Well, he, he is. great me if for fun Correct me if I'm wrong on this, Richard, but I think he is a Richard A. Epstein as well, right? That's I think the he's, he
2: got right down to the initial. I believe that's that right. And I wrote a book once, and what they did is they printed it in soft cover, and what they did is they attributed that book to me. And I said, "Could you basically take it off the cover?" And they said, "We have to destroy the entire book." Uh, so it turns oh out, God. I'm glad it was them rather than me because otherwise there might be an academic fraud charge launched against this poor man.
0: So the the, the immediate backstory. When the show started in 2011 at Ricochet, I came on, Ricochet used to have guest contributors where someone would come on Mm -hmm. and write at the site for a week, and a lot of us got converted over into full-time contributors. And that's what what I did. And during that run, I made my first ever appearance on any podcast. It was a one-off show with Peter Robinson and Bill McGurn, where we were talking about presidential speech writing, in in which I think I talked for at most 10% of the time, which was good training for this show. And... (laughs) I didn't think it went very well. And then they turned around and asked me if I wanted to host a show with the two of you, which was daunting because I had never met either of you at that point. And you were like, I, who are these guys characters? Oh, I knew both of your careers very well, but we had never met. In fact, I don't think I've ever told you guys this, but Richard, you wrote a book that came out. I think I don't mean to make you feel old, but I came out, I think, during my senior year of college. This would have been 2004 or so. <laughs> you wrote a book called called Skepticism and Freedom 2003 which I, which I had been picked which I had picked up and had been very influenced by.
1: and then similarly, John, you never know what you're going to find at the <laughs> Palos Verdes High School 7/11 <laughs> And then similarly, John be, be,
0: because of your influence, I waterboarded a lot of my friends in college. <laughs> no, actually, I ha- I had read uh, War by Other Means, which had come out, uh, I think, when I was in graduate school. And the weird thing was that when we started, if I recall this correctly, we never talked in advance about what the show was going to be. We We just yeah. showed up and did it. I don't think I actually spoke to you guys until we were recording the first show, which we were assured was a pilot that we could throw away if we didn't like it. But you guys... Didn't know that I was going to do all the shtick in the opening, and I don't know why I thought I could get away with it. But the idea was to reassure people that we could do an hour-long show about constitutional law that wasn't going to put.
1: Oh, Troy, Troy, it's better than that. I mean, you—you are still a a young yearling, but you know the (laughs) ricochet. You know, never was not once a gigantic empire of podcasts as it is now. In fact, if I remember, we are the first. Podcast that was created after the main after one. the flagship, I think. Yeah. Yes, That's right. Yes, and I, I actually think I was the first guest on that main flagship podcast, mainly because if I remember, um, there somebody canceled. First- yeah, their first guest canceled, and I happened to be staying at the Beverly Hills Tilton, and I was sitting in the lobby. And so they called me up, and I just started describing all the people who are walking by, and they were having some awards show. So if I remember, I still remember when I said. I said, <laughs> oh, well, um, Alec Baldwin just went by, and then the fat Baldwin brother went by, and now here's the skinny Baldwin brother going by. <laughs> they thought this was the funniest thing. They said, give that man a
2: podcast john i've never been a stargazer
0: (laughs) not at all surprising not at all surprising well listen fellas uh, for our 10-year anniversary a couple of people have been kind enough to record notes of congratulation for us and here we'll play one here at the top i believe scott our producer can tell me if i'm wrong about this i believe this is from leonard leo from the federalist society oh
3: well i want to wish a very happy anniversary to law talk i understand it's uh, been 10 years since uh, john U. and richard epstein launched this venture uh podcast uh i don't know who would listen to two academics on a podcast for an extended period of time but uh it seems to have worked it's 10 years in the making or 10 years in the going um I'll tell you, what struck me when I heard it was the 10th anniversary is an awful lot has happened uh, in those past 10 years uh, in in the legal space. You've had the transformation of the U.S. Supreme Court, federal courts, a great increase in the number of judges who ascribe to uh, limited constitutional government. You've had the transformation of the role of state attorneys general, who historically were just really beholden of the plaintiff's lawyers, but... um, Now you have a whole new breed of state attorneys general who are defenders of the structural constitution and pushing back against uh, federal government overreach. You've had the slow but steady erosion of some of the jurisprudential props of uh, administrative state overreach. And, of course, you've had some things on on what conservatives and libertarians would think of the negative side, things like uh, greater radicalization and censorship of many uh, law, law school campuses, places where, you know, Richard and John work. They're, they're senior enough that they can uh, buffet those storms, but many people can't. And then, of course, there has been many more intense attacks on conservative philanthropy in the rule of law space over the past 10 years. So it's been mixed, mixed, a lot of blessings, a lot of... Um, Unfortunate trends and developments as well, uh, but through it all, Richard and John, you know, um, get into these issues and others with, uh, with courage and independence, but also a good sense of humor and, and a nice amount of banter. So it's great to have, uh, to have them doing this uh, show, Law Talk. It's great to have them in the uh, intellectual space, uh, and I hope that uh, the show thrives for a, a number of further years
0: very kind of leonard leo and he's being very modest there because a lot of the positive developments that he's describing are ones that probably would not have happened were it not for him i was going to ask you guys yes. this later in the show i could tell you when i met
2: leonard <laughs> <laughs> we remembers one people. leonard ran the Cornell federal society and invited me there to give his speech in an impossible room, which was about, uh, <laughs> feet long, room. about four feet narrow. And you could tell from that day on that he would be a force. It didn't well, take long. I never met le- anybody who was accepted president who had Leonard's kind of, shall we say, gritty determination to make good. And as you could tell from his remarks, it's not a question that he just has passion. He also understands what he's fighting for.
0: Yeah, incredibly sharp. And I was going to ask you guys this question uh, towards the end of the show, but since it's we have not heard these remarks in advance, so since Leonard brought it up, I would just like to get the reaction of both of you to the way that he's characterized the past decades. I mean, are those the things that you guys think of as the major changes in the times that we've been doing the show?
2: Look, let me answer it the following way. I I think Leonard is very acute when he starts talking about the sorts of issues that you see in terms of the administrative estate and so forth. But if you're trying to figure out what the larger economy is about, it seems to me that you have to take into account several major legislative reforms, which I think have been largely set back. I'm thinking primarily of the Affordable Care Act and the, um, oh, my God, the uh, Dodd-Frank Act having to do with corporate reorganization. Uh, the American Vents Act is generally, I think, a mistake, but of less disastrous consequences. And, of course, there are the popular movements where the, the rise of progressivism and the utter unawareness of the limitations uh, of what government can do, I think, is now captured not only in Obama, who I thought was very wrong on these issues, but Biden, who seems to be Obama's squared in the wrong direction. John, what about you?
1: So. I can't even remember what you were asking about.
0: <laughs> so, I was asking how you would by what Richard this. was talking about. <laughs> the changes of the past 10 years since we've been doing this in constitutional law,
1: yeah. <laughs> So uh, of course the I think the nature of the Supreme Court has changed utterly from so for example when I was a student to now. Uh, I think uh, I I think what's really happened is that the kind of liberalism of the Uh, Warren and Burger courts has become intellectually empty, and there's nothing really left to replace it. So it really reminds me of uh, you know when I don't know if we call them you know for example scientific revolutions. Sometimes when one paradigm just collapses and a new one comes to replace it. And so in the old days, you would you know the judges and professors were just openly. Policymakers. In fact, they would often say, you know, who better than us lawyers and judges to run things in society? We yeah. know best. Uh, and you don't see that anymore. In fact, I think, um, you know, when Justice Kagan in her nomination hearing says, you know, we're all textualists now, uh, you know, I think that shows the, the real revolution in legal reasoning uh, and constitutional law that you see. And it's not just, uh, it's not a Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal thing. I mean, look at the two impeachments. We've talked a lot about them on the podcast. The two impeachments of Donald Trump were, uh, to me, amazing because they were both both uh, Democrats and Republicans tried to prove their cases by resort to the text of the Constitution and to its original meaning. There were very little claims that, oh, we have to impeach here, we have to do this kind of impeachment for reasons of just good public policy without regard to what the Constitution says, or the Constitution is malleable, we can do whatever we want now. You really didn't hear that. But those would be the arguments from roughly the 1950s to the 1980s. And I think that's ended. I think that's that's over. And I think liberalism has exhausted itself. And conservatism, uh, you know, doesn't win every time. As Leonard said, there's been plenty of defeats. But I think, cons- you know, sir, originalism and textualism has, has definitely have the upper hand now.
0: I'm so glad that you brought up the impeachments, John, because that's where I wanted to start the the sort of normal part of the show. And I, I don't want to relitigate all of the impeachment stuff. It's mostly behind us. And you guys, along with Andy McCarthy, did an episode of Uncommon Knowledge about this, which goes into great detail about it. I encourage people to download that if they want to hear your, your full breakdown of this. But a couple of questions about what it means going forward. Um, Richard, I'll start with you. After the vote to acquit, Mitch McConnell gave an impassioned speech in which he laid a lot of blame at Donald Trump's feet. But he said it was his judgment the Senate did not have it within its constitutional power to convict an ex-president. But here's what he also said. I'm going to read you a quote here. Impeachment was never meant to be the final forum for American justice. Impeachment, conviction, and removal are a specific intra-governmental safety valve. It is not the criminal justice system where individual accountability is the paramount goal. Indeed, Justice Story specifically reminded that while former officials were not eligible for impeachment or conviction, they were still liable to be tried and punished in the ordinary tribunals of justice. We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation and former presidents are not immune from being held accountable by either one. Close quote. That has been interpreted for obvious reasons as Senator McConnell suggesting that maybe there's a reckoning awaiting Donald Trump in the courts. But Richard, my question for you on these issues around January 6th, put aside the taxes and all the other legal fights that Donald Trump's going to have to navigate. Does Donald Trump have anything to worry about in the courts? Is is there any front on which he's especially vulnerable?
2: Well, look, so long as there's a prosecutor that a prosecutor that has discretion, you have to be worried, particularly if it turns out it's in the hands of uh, a party which is adverse to his interests. What Merrick Garland would do, how independent he will be, it's very difficult to say. Uh, So there's always that kind of a risk. If you ask me whether or not they could make the case, I think the answer to that question is still no. Uh, What typically happens in these things, if you're trying to prove an incitement case, you have to look at the entire context of everything that's been written and said. One of the luxuries of doing this as an impeachment is you take one sentence out of context with respect to what he said before the crowd, and one word that he said with respect to his interactions with the Georgia legislature. Uh, But if you're trying to do the whole thing, you're going to have to say an insurrection uh, is an effort to try to remove somebody by force from power, uh, which I don't think could be done this case. Case because the specific object of Trump's ire was the inability of the sen- Senate to consider his particular objections to counting the votes. I think he was wrong on those particular issues. Uh, that's a race judicator question. Uh, but I think, in effect, if they were trying to do this in a serious way, uh, the defense would pretty much prevail. Uh, incitements are very difficult to prove uh, because there's so many other people who are doing so many other things in the course of it. If you want something that's much closer to incitement, just think of judges, you know, Charles Schumer on the steps, I guess, of the Supreme Court building with a bunch of people who were angry sitting next to him and saying, Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch, we can't survive your hideous and dangerous decisions and so forth. That's much closer, and I don't think anybody would regard that. So I don't think that that's going to happen. I just mentioned one other point. If you read what the Constitution says, it talks about you know removal from offices of honor, trust, or profit, uh, it turns out those are appointed offices, as best we can tell. So that even if he had been convicted, he could be barred from them. But I don't think he could be stopped from running again as president of the United States. As some commentator pointed that out to me. Uh, I did not think of the point myself, but it is ultimately ironic uh, that you can't name him dog catcher for the federal government, but he could, I think, run again. And the basic argument is it's a political judgment as to whether or not you could win an elective office. It's a legal judgment to see whether you could get an appointive office where you don't have the Democratic protection. So, no, I don't think that this is there. I was very strongly opposed, not only on the constitutional grounds, but also on the substantive grounds with respect to incitement. This is not to say that I think Donald Trump did well. Uh, The harm he did to the nation by so screwing up everything in the Georgia election that the Democrat managed to win two seats because of his intervention is the most consequential thing that he ever did. Uh, You now have a Senate uh, which is really, I think, could be weaponized along with the House, both having very narrow majorities. And uh, Mr. Biden saying that, you know, blue and red will meet um, is, I think, belied by the fact that we're going to see a lot of tie-baking votes and very narrow majorities in the House. I think we're in for a very grim time on these things. And Donald Trump has to bear a very large part of that blame.
0: John, uh, let me have you take the lead on this one. Jonathan Rauch had a piece in The Atlantic recently where he suggested that there were a lot of de facto constitutional amendments that came out of the Trump administration by which he meant places where Trump had altered the norm so much that the fabric of how we govern has changed. And one of the examples he used was impeachment. His argument being that the failure to convict in these cases demonstrates that the impeachment power is now essentially... Dead letter. So uh, let me read you the nub of his argument on this. Quote Trump's first impeachment in 2020 was for trying to use federal aid dollars to extort political help from a foreign country. That seemed as serious as the Watergate shenanigans that forced Nixon from office. His second impeachment in 2021 was for sending a seditious mob into the streets to overturn an election, a misdeed that exceeded any prior presidential offense. As the House managers rightly asked in Trump's second trial, if the Senate did not convict a president for fomenting a violent insurrection, what in the world would it convict him for? The particulars, though, turned out to matter. In both cases, the outcome acquittal was a foregone conclusion because all Trump needed was 34 pliable and protective Senate votes. And Rash concludes this by saying the impeachment mechanism was intended to be a check on presidential misbehavior. Instead, post-Trump, it is now more likely a partisan permission slip, allowing presidents to do as they please, provided they keep their party in line. In other words, from now on, presidents should assume that the way to hold on to power is to stay not on the right side of the law, but on the right side of their party. To put it mildly, This is not what the founders intended. Close quote. What's your reaction, John, to Rash's argument there?
1: Well, I just wonder whether he would agree with that if he had just swapped the name Clinton for Trump, because if anything, Trump is not the one who has broken the norm. I think this is uh, quite consistent with what we saw during the Clinton impeachment, too, where uh, the vote on impeachment and removal pretty much fell along uh, partisan lines and in fact that's true of the presidential only a presidential impeachment before that which was of andrew johnson uh, so i don't i don't think the norm is that suddenly Trump has eviscerated impeachment because he organized uh, his political party because for the most part impeachment has not been a serious tool for constraining uh, presidents if anything, I would say the the norm that's going that seems to be changing might be uh, a growing use of impeachment rather than some kind mm-hmm. of reduced use. So that's one. Uh, the second thing I do. Um, I do think, as he says, that the facts are important. And so when you look at Trump's first impeachment. I think that's a relatively close call. But to me, I don't think I, I do agree with Rush that it's easy the founders didn't think impeachment was just limited to the commission of crimes. On the other hand, I don't think it was supposed to be as broad as just reacting to presidential misbehavior. To me, it always was important that it was a high crime and misdemeanor, that it's not just something that presidents did that was bad, that created the grounds for impeachment, but it was also that it was important. Uh, It was important in harming the state. And I didn't see that in the Trump impeachment. I I quite agree. The second Trump impeachment, I think uh, Trump could well have been impeached had he been in office longer. Uh, The House and Senate could have impeached them if they had wanted to, Mm -hmm. uh, if they had chosen to accelerate the schedule and do it before January 20th rather than waiting until uh, February. But I think the uh, the more important uh, problem is I tend to think that these things go in cycles, that I think uh, liberals are only too happy to attack the presidency and claim that there aren't enough checks on it when there's a Republican in office. But I didn't hear them making these claims when Obama was in office and doing things like not enforcing the immigration laws or transferring money without appropriations for Obamacare or I think he was okay to do this, but bombing uh, Syria or Libya without congressional authorization. Uh, And so I suspect my prediction for the next 10 years when we do the 20th anniversary show (laughs) is that I bet you aren't going to see a lot of journalists and academics criticize Joe Biden for using presidential power excessively. They will mute themselves as they did during Obama and as they did during Clinton.
2: Mark, can I comment on this very briefly? Well, of course, Richard. The first thing about Rauch is <clears throat> he gives one sentence summaries of the facts, which essentially omit and allied all sorts of powerful details. And, you know, you're talking about, for example, uh, both events are widely public. Now, they're very complicated accounts, And to treat the situation when you're talking to Zelenko, or Zelensky rather, in front of, you know, 30 other people where he asked a favor, i.e., trying to help to deal with the Germans is what you do is you have to twist and torture the language so as to make it appear much more insidious than it terminally was. And in fact, the entire process of deliberation on that was a source of immense confusion on both parties. Stripping it down, I think, is just a grievous misservice. I also disagree with John on one thing. Um, he says, you know, he doesn't think that this has to be a criminal case. I think that's wrong. I think it does have to be a criminal case uh, because that's where they talk about conviction and so forth. But when they start to talking about things like, you know, bribery and treason, what's clear is it's only a subclass of criminal cases that are involved, mainly those that seem to involve some kind of conduct that undermines the public trust and the probity of our public institution. Uh, So I'm not sure that you could under this standard impeach a president for reckless driving, even though you could certainly get some kind of a conviction. I'm also strongly of the view that with respect to other kinds of offenses, it's a terrible mistake as they decided in Clinton Jones, or let any proceedings go forward while he's sitting in office. What they do is they suspend the statute of limitations. They preserve various kinds of documents and so forth and wait till he's out of office for the thing to go ahead. Uh, so, I mean, the problem about Rauch is if he does not give an honest and fair account of what's going on so that anybody who has a different view of the facts would say the real abuse in this case was Democrats taking very ambiguous statements at best and then pushing them into the mode where you'd regard them as perfectly clear uh, of the Dealing with an impeachment. He could not win these cases. Let's be very clear about it. You could not win any criminal conviction, I think, for what happened in the Zelenko, Zelensky hearing. And as I said earlier, I think it's very doubtful you could get Trump for anything, even a much weaker thing, i.e., incitement for riot, as opposed to uh, insurrection, which is a much stricter charge. Uh, it's very hard to get criminal convictions. And indeed, the way the whole thing was done in the House on a very hurried basis, nobody doing discovery, just think of how long people. People took before they managed to bring fairly strong and correct impeachment charges against Richard Nixon. And these guys are trying to do it in four days. And it turns out that before that, um, Mrs. Pelosi committed what I regard as serious obstruction of justice to tell a sitting vice president, you must find the president to be unable or we will impeach him is, in fact, a use of political threats, uh, which is an effort to try and make him deviate from his own honest belief as to whether or not President Trump was able to run the government. There was no sign that notwithstanding what he did in Georgia, he did anything as an official of the government, which put us in jeopardy. I think these are very serious serious kinds of behaviors. And so I don't think when you're looking at this, it could be just a one-sided issue. I think you have to be much more careful. And as I've said from the beginning, you have to distinguish between your politics law. I was very much in favor of Trump resigning, uh, even with respect to social pressure from the time he took office in January of 2017. And I still think that they have not done their job in making these into impeachment cases.
0: As a reminder on our 10th anniversary of how modest my contributions are to the show, Richard, you mentioned a, a president, the possibility of a president being impeached for reckless driving. It is worth noting that Ulysses S. Grant was arrested for speeding during his presidency in his horse-drawn carriage. But no. Yes, that is true. No. Is they true. didn't have speed limits with horses, did they? There there were well, he was he was crossing the line into what we would now consider reckless driving. I mean, Grant, really? Grant, Grant had an appetite for speed, yeah. Um all right. So we are Wait, wait, how would you catch somebody? Uh, I,
1: I don't like know, radar. With, like, would, you have a, would you have a horse and follow them with little lights? You know what? Me, like, I, I, well, you I, could I, just ride your horse faster. They would never catch
0: you. That
1: makes no sense.
0: I will dive deeper into this while you are answering the next <laughs> question. So
1: yeah,
0: we're, we're dealing with a new administration now, and the, the big legal fights aren't quite underway yet. But I, I do want to start you guys with this one, which seems to be a little under the radar. The same federal judge in Texas who issued a temporary restraining order last month, yesterday granted a preliminary injunction against the Biden administration's plans for a 100-day moratorium on most deportations, which they announced at the very start of the administration. And, John, I'll start with you here. Uh, there, There was a lot of frustration amongst conservatives during the Trump years about precisely these kinds of moves, judges coming in with these nationwide injunctions justice thomas and justice Gorsuch both spoke out about their distaste for this kind of thing any reason why that same kind of criticism wouldn't apply here
1: no i quite agree troy i think conservatives should be principled about this and we were against universal nationwide injunctions by a single district court under right, trump we should be against them under biden although you know conservatives um, you could say conservative causes, if, if you want to call them that, still use them quite infrequently compared to the massive number of them. I think I read some study, I think, that said that uh, under the Obama years, yes, there were some nationwide injunctions, but no more than two dozen. I think it's even less than two dozen, whereas under Trump, we're talking about like 100, maybe even more. But I still don't see how a single district judge whose power extends only to, you know, the territory of that district court has the power to stop the federal government from doing something throughout the entire country. Um, Now, on the other hand, I do think that district judge is right on the merits. I do think that um, a president doesn't have the authority to just come in and say, I will not enforce the law at all as it is written because I just simply disagree with the policy choice that Congress has made. So I think he's right on the merits, but I don't think he can stop the federal government from doing it as a whole throughout the whole country. Look,
2: this is a serious issue. The president shall take care that the law be faithfully executed. And John has pointed this out many times, that you necessarily have to have prosecutorial discretion uh, because resources are limited and you have to pick your targets. Both of us agreed when this happened that you have to be very careful about blanket exceptions for particular classes of cases, you know, minor crimes, for example, when the statute doesn't make a distinction between them, but let that pass. But in this particular case, he's saying, I'm just not doing anything until I re-examine what's going on. I think the correct rule is you re-examine the policies as they're going on, but continue to enforce them in the way that you have until you come to a principled position. So the issue is, one, is nationwide injunctions, where I think John is right. But even within his own district, it seems to me that it would be correct to enjoin that. At that point, you could then see the government take an appeal. Now you're going to get a circuit involved. And then this is important enough, it might go to the Supreme Court. Uh, But what Biden has done through the executive office uh, orders has been some streets ahead of what it is that that Trump did on this subject matter. And, you know, the question as to whether or not it's abuse of power is much more directed against him than it is against uh, the Trump administration on a whole variety of substantive issues. I mean, there's a way in which he wants to read the anti-discrimination laws, uh, his ability to enter, which I don't think he has, a treaty with respect to the Paris Agreement um, by executive action and so forth. I think These things are all subject to challenge in court, and that it turns out that you know usurpation of power uh, by a sitting president is something which is not unique unto Republicans. I regard uh, Biden's decisions to fire people who have term appointments because he doesn't like their politics, something that Trump never did, is also being something which uh, breaks us to put the phrase established cultural norms. He's the first to do that. He does it in order to satisfy his labor constituency. I think he's actually. Treading very close to the line on a whole variety of issues, on the abuse of power issues and the rule of law issues, which the Democrats at one time thought was their calling card. Do
0: you guys want a Ulysses S. Grant update? I did look this up <laughs>
2: while you are talking. I did look this up. Oh, good. This from,
0: so this is this is not from a fringe source. This is from Business Insider. But who knows? Because historical stuff, historical fictions get passed down. But anyway, <laughs> the the way that this is described here is so this is a better story than I told originally. Grant was pulled over twice in two days. And the first day he talked his way out of it. The second day, to your point, John, he was pulled over. He took a block, apparently, for the arresting officer who was a black soldier who had fought for the union to Hmm. get him. But here's how this story ends. The president and other speeders were taken to the local police station. Officers at the station were reportedly unsure if they could charge a sitting president if he'd not been impeached. In the end, Grant paid a $20 bond but didn't show up to court. Really? There you go. Cool.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you, because that was my position, right? (laughs) Exactly right, Richard. I'm I'm glad to see that I'm an intuitive historian.
3: (laughs) So let
0: let me uh, move you guys on to another thing that, Richard, you actually called this to our attention, this this letter that got some attention written by two Democrats in the House, Anna Eshoo and Jerry McNerney, both, of course, from California, which went out to a bunch of television providers asking them whether they plan to keep distributing Fox News and Newsmax and One America News, and if so, to explain why. Their argument here was that these outlets have been spreading misinformation and conspiracy theories about the election and the Capitol riot. And then, of course, this is following in the wake of the social media crackdown, which pulled President Trump off Twitter, shut down Parler for a while. So uh, two different dynamics there. The House letter is utilizing government power, even if it's soft power. The tech companies are private actors. But Richard, a lot of conservatives now say that those distinctions don't mean that much anymore, that there's this kind of soft collusion between politicians and tech companies and corporate media, that they're just going to marginalize the dissenting voices at every turn. And so maybe we shouldn't be so fastidious about this public-private distinction anymore. What's your view on that?
2: Well, I think there are three parts that you have to take into account. One, I think any direct threat by a government official who has power to introduce legislation is completely out of bounds. And particularly since it's involving viewpoint discrimination, I think it's terrible. If they had sent the same letter to CNN or MSNBC, I would have still objected to it. But now it's that much worse. Secondly, I do think that there are serious issues with respect to the way in which the tech networks do censor information. Uh, when somebody comes out and saying, if you disagree with what the World Health Organization thinks about a certain issue you cannot speak. Well, I disagree with virtually everything they say. And it turns out I don't regard these as false statements of fact. I think they're future predictions in which you are supposed to have an honest debate. And I think that the uh, remark that these two people made essentially is totally out of respect for these kinds of traditions. And then with the Trek companies, I think that the level of arrogance that they show is really great. Do they have monopoly power? Are they common carriers? A really tough issue. Uh, the issue that I want to stress first is that they should have enough sense to realize that they are sufficiently powerful, that you cannot be two roles simultaneously, a fierce advocate on the one hand and essentially a gatekeeper to a network on the other. Facebook has said, well, we're going to have a neutral court there. It remains to be seen whether or not that will be truly neutral and truly done. But at this point, my attitude is I'm not sure of the correct legal sanction, but a plague on all your houses seems to be the appropriate response.
0: John, uh, on this issue of censorship and, and misinformation, there's been a lot of controversy over who said what, especially as regards the election. And one of the results of that has been Dominion, the voting technology firm, bringing a series of lawsuits against people who claimed that the company was involved with rigging the election. So they've done this with Sidney Powell. They've done it with Rudy Giuliani, who apparently spent a week trying to dodge getting served. <laughs> Did he really? Yeah, that, that's the story <laughs> in the New York Daily News. They've they've now done it with Mike Lindell, the My Pillow guy, because mm. all stories in American politics now go back to the My Pillow guy. Mm-hmm. But but you know, there's been this spate of very careful statements on air. A bunch of the Fox hosts have walked back things that they said about Dominion under threat of these kinds of lawsuits. These are all defamation suits, each for over a billion dollars. And John, I've seen a number of people suggest, you know what, maybe this isn't so bad. If if the problem is misinformation circulating everywhere, maybe you just sue. Maybe this is the clearest way of establishing the truth. Maybe this is a case where the lawyers, God help us, are our salvation. What's your view on that?
1: So first, you got to ask, are are the courts and these lawyers going to apply defamation law in a principled, neutral way without regard to the partisanship or issues at stake? Makes me wonder, Uh, you know, you could say, well, maybe we don't agree with um, New York Times versus Sullivan, which created this absence of malice standard. Richard is the expert on defamation and torts, but uh, it became constitutionalized because. Uh, if you're a public figure right then people can say all kinds of stuff about you Uh, they don't have to be correct It doesn't have to be true there just has to be this standard that was kind of more articulated in later cases that there's been an absence of malice or um, in the the way that this the accuser or critics wrote you know that they didn't say anything intentionally false and so uh I, based on that standard i think a lot of the things that people are claiming are defamation um not a lot of people the thing that that um i'm sorry that dominion are smartmatic are claiming defamation may very well not be defamation because people could say well i heard it from somewhere else or i was just making a reasonable inference i i looked up and never saw any studies that said that what i was saying was wrong uh yeah you know, that's the you know, those that's easy to say people can say all kinds of terrible things about the President and Trump and Congress and governors, and they're never held to defamation so I would think that the companies uh should be held you know should not benefit from some any easier standard and i i still i still i guess I agree with Justice Holmes about speech I don't really rely on defamation lawsuits or liable to police. Public discourse. I still kind of think the marketplace of ideas, vision, is the right one. The way to you know, combat mm-hmm. you know misinformation and lies is just to have more speech and more and better speech. I think in the end will win out over. Uh, bad speech, even though uh, I think what's really going on is we're living in a transitional period about technology where we used to live in a world where just a few networks, a few newspapers basically chose and controlled all the news in the world, in the country. And we're now, you know, we're in more of the Wild West because of the um, cheapness of <clears throat> how cheap it's become to disseminate ideas. And I think people are still uncomfortable with that. They're still not sure about the consequences of that. And there, you know, there's still, I think, parts of uh, society that want to kick Keep a lid on it and control it just like it was controlled 40 or 50 years ago. I don't think in the end that's going to succeed. And maybe this is to me, maybe I'm wrong with this, but to me, this these efforts that censorship and ours are kind of like a last gasp of the old order. But that in this, in this new technological world, this, these kinds of efforts to create these uh, bottlenecks in the control of information are not going to succeed.
2: Let me answer starting at the opposite end. These were billion dollar lawsuits. The definition of defamation is a statement that brings you into. Hatred, ridicule, and contempt, but the really operative situation that interferes with your beneficial associations with third parties. In this particular case, Dominion, I do not think, has alleged that it has lost any contracts with any particular person, Um, and in fact, it hasn't even been able to show. I suspect that its stock value or its book of business has been down. Uh, So the damages that it could get by way of general damages would probably be one one thousandth of the amount of money that they're asking for, unless there's much greater particularity there than I've known. The second thing is when you're dealing with defamation, uh, there are cases in which it is really vital that these actions be allowed, which was always understood in the regime before New York Times against Sullivan. Um, And the basic argument that they made there is if you make a particular statement of fact uh, that alters key behavior and interferes with advantageous relationships, something should be done. Uh, So if you tell somebody that his wife has committed adultery and it turns out that this statement Is false, and particularly if he knew it was false, um, and then the divorce follows on consequence of that, uh, there's serious actions and defamation because you've made a statement to somebody that has, in fact, actually hurt you. Uh, The difficulty that you get in these cases is when you're dealing with particular statements about uh, matters and businesses that are widely within the public domain, so there are many alternative sources that are around, uh, then it turns out the basic correct assumption is to say that all of this stuff is subject to so much give and take uh, that dominion could defend itself in the public domain. It has been defended by others. And at this particular point, you don't have that single isolated fact with that single devastating consequence. And so the action in question would not to be allowed. And in fact, I mean, you start pushing this a bit further, you know, you get a lot of other things. I mean, can Donald Trump being an uh, action in defamation against Adam Schiff for the way in which he made false statements about how the president had taken stuff with respect to the Russians? I regard the statement as defamatory. I think it was probably also false, but I think it would be a terrible mistake to allow any defamation action on those grounds, because I think that the amount of ventilation of that particular issue is so enormous uh, that it's best left to the political process. So I think in the end, John is probably right in what he said. The way you get there is not, however, through a general skepticism about all defamation suits. It's through a more precise analysis of the ways in which these cases are, in fact, brought when they are. Successful. In the 1980s, there were many, many defamation cases, all of which had the same characteristics. Uh, The plaintiff alleged a false statement that disrupted his or her business prospects to great loss, and the defendants talked about the virtues of the free press. The defendants should never win on that device. They should win on the fact that either the information was public knowledge or the harm did not take place. But what's happened is since about 1991, there has not been a serious defamation case that has made its way to the Supreme Court.
0: We have another anniversary message, gentlemen, from our, our former Ricochet colleague, in fact, Ricochet co-founder, and our current Hoover Institution colleague, Peter Robinson.
1: Ten years of law talk. Look, I know what's going to happen. Everybody's going to be saying, Richard Epstein, John Yoo, what geniuses. Baloney. That show depends on Troy Senick. Oh, I, I know this. you, Richard, and I know you, John, and I know the two of you are impossible. <laughs> it's all down to Troy. Congratulations, gentlemen.
0: That was the best one. Can we play that one
1: again? Yeah, this oh, is good. just the mafia of former speechwriters. I
0: mean, come
2: That's on. right, by the way. I mean, and we don't know, you know whether we... the statement is defamatory of John and. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, we have a fraternity, right? There is an actual fraternity. Yes. Yeah, so and like called- some society with the name of the it's, first speechwriter. It's something the like that. Judson Welliver Society. Judson Welliver worked, I think, was hired by Harding. I don't know if he actually worked for I don't know if he actually wrote speeches for Harding. I know he did for Coolidge. And by the way, I'm just going to vent this right now in the hopes that some other speech writers listening to it. I've never been invited to one of their meetings. Really? You haven't?
1: <laughs> no, I was I mean- thinking I should write one presidential speech someday just so I get invited to the parties.
0: Okay, you know what? So I'm not going to name any names here, but there is a longstanding trend, and I know of at least a few people on social media who do this, of people who were interns, or who were researchers, or who were fact-checkers in presidential speech-writing offices who do that. We used to do this as a kindness for those staffers. We would allow them to be part, when you write, at least when I was there, when you write a presidential speech at the bottom for the president's um, for the president's information, there is a list of who the speechwriters are. So anybody, he knows who to fire. Yeah, it <laughs> <yeah>, came close. <laughs> um, so everybody who has a piece gets some credit. And there are a lot of people oh. who at some point you give them one of these just so they can say, so they can go home and tell their grandmother at some point that they wrote presidential speech. It is, as I say, a kindness. There is a critical mass of these people. Who now pass themselves off as White (laughs) House speechwriters, and they're the ones who are
1: taking up the spots at your party, so you can't get in.
0: Exactly. Well, John, as you well know,
1: there are a lot of reasons that I can't get into that party. (laughs) Well, yeah, you just can't get past the metal detectors for start. (laughs) I'm a yeah. No, this. uh, i the funny thing is that's Harding who, right, is not memorable for any speeches who found who had the first speechwriter.
0: That's why I find that ironic. Harding, there, there is actually uh, quite a bit of literature published under H. L. Mencken's name as to just how terrible a,
2: a public speaker <laughs> Warren Harding <laughs> yeah, that's was. True. I mean, he stayed um, on the court bench for a good reason, right?
0: But Richard, Richard will give a rousing defense of Warren Harding's cabinet. I know this for a fact.
2: Yeah, and, and you remember why?
1: Why? Because you can't remember who any of them were.
2: Well, you never heard of Charles Evans Hughes, right, John?
1: Oh, was he Secretary of State? He was Secretary Harding? of
2: State. You never he heard Secretary of Andrew Carnegie, right?
1: It would have been much better if he'd never State there, Mellon. never become... Andrew Mellon,
2: rather. He, uh, Andrew Carnegie. Uh, it's <laughs> late in the day. Uh, he was Secretary of Treasury. You never heard of Herbert Hoover, i.e., before he was president, who was Secretary of Commerce. And even Harry Doherty has one great distinction. He recommended to Harding that he, pawn- that he pardon Eugene Debs, who had been basically railroaded by uh, Palmer, who was the attorney general under Wilson. Uh, if you're trying to figure out how the economy works, Harding managed to break a recession much more rapidly than any other president. Um, he was actually, in terms of what he did, pretty good on most things. He got victimized because the Albert Falls scandal that took place with respect to certain kinds of leases. I can't even remember their names now. Basically Teapot, dome. Teapot, right? dome, Which one? Yes. Teapot Dome. Teapot Teapot Dome. Teapot Dome. That basically became the characteristic of of the entire administration. So I am a moderate Harding fan. Uh, (laughs) It turns out, of course, these people are always rated by historians. The historians never tell you that they're 90 to 95 percent Democrat. Or if they do tell you, they say it's because of our mastery of the record that we understand that these are right and true beliefs and that Republicans should always be regarded as pariahs in this grand thing. Think, for example, the very low rating given to uh, Calvin Coolidge and then Read Am- Amity Schles's book on the subject.
1: Or yeah, Harding sucked. I mean, come on. What? Harding sucked. I, I mean, no, I think didn't. Coolidge could make a good case for Harding. Come on. He, well, well, Harding, what did he Harding do apart from T. dome? Apart from one of the greatest scandals ever. Well, wait a second. One <laughs> there <the> was, <laughs> I don't
0: think people quite understand how provocative your defense of Harry Doherty is, too, Richard. Because well, I know
2: that. Say, I mean, I said yeah. he was a louse in many other ways. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but, you know, if you're talking about attorney generals, the Palmer raids, basically, a thousand times more serious to public health. The most overrated president Under in Woodrow the United Wilson. States is yeah, Woodrow Wilson. Wilson. Yeah, that I think he was is a true. worse president than Harding. How do you like that?
0: I like it a lot. I like
1: it
2: we're
0: a lot. Gonna have I'm
1: going to gonna... have a President's Day show. Unfortunately, oh God, let's
0: do it. Let's and do we'll it. talk I mean, about Grover yeah, Cleveland. Hell yeah, we will. Okay, so I'm going to give you guys one last substantive measure before we get out of here. So. We were talking about the election controversy before Peter. Wait,
1: wait, are we th- we haven't fantastic. made fun no. of Peter Robinson yet. We, don't, we shouldn't
0: because okay. you, you see how deep the reservoir of his wisdom runs. <laughs>
1: so we were talking about the election. Controversy. <laughs> we should talk
0: about the newest development out of the Supreme court on this, which is that the court turned away a challenge from Republicans in Pennsylvania who wanted to disqualify the mailed ballots that arrived after election day. And, this, we should be clear because of the, the flood of cases around. This was not a frivolous case. the The, the issue, of no. course, was that the standard for how late these ballots could be accepted came from the courts in Pennsylvania, not from the legislature. And Justices Thomas, Alito and Gorsuch dissented in the decision not to hear this, stipulating, by the way, that the votes in question couldn't have changed the outcome of the election. But, John, here is the final paragraph of the dissent from your old boss, Justice Thomas. Ah, One right. wonders what this court waits for. We failed to settle this dispute before the election and thus provide clear rules. Now we again fail to provide clear rules for future elections. The decision to leave election law hidden beneath a shroud of doubt is baffling. By doing nothing, we invite further confusion and erosion of voter confidence. Our fellow citizens deserve better and expect more of us. I respectfully dissent. Dissect this for us. What do you make of Justice Thomas's dissent, John?
1: I'm, I think he's right. And I think this is a, another species of a phenomenon I wrote about in my book on Trump, which is just because Trump is involved, you see lawyers, judges, politicians throw out all their standards and good sense because they can't stand Trump. And here's another example. If there was ever you know, a more important constitutional issue, which raises basic structural issues about how our government works, and there was a perfect time to decide it, it would have been this case. But I think because Trump is involved... Uh, the court didn't want to take a case where it could, and I think actually more, more likely would, have found on Trump's behalf. And, and so the basic issue is uh, the Constitution says that state legislatures choose the method for picking presidential electors. Yet in several states, including my home state, Pennsylvania, state courts or sometimes even executives of states interceded and changed all kinds of issues related to the choosing of the electors in this last presidential election president in Pennsylvania. It was what day the ballots had to arrive in other States. It was whether you had to get a witness to verify your signature or whether you had to signature, you had to sign it and date it and give your address on the mail-in ballot and so on and so forth. Uh, This is This is an extremely important question uh, because, in some areas, the, court, the Supreme Court has said when the Constitution gives something to the state legislature, well, it doesn't have to really be the legislature. It could be done by initiative. There's actually a case involving um, redistricting commissions where the court said, even though the Constitution in parallel here says the state shall draw the congressional districts man, we'll let the people do that by initiative. This was the Arizona um, case a couple of yeah, years ago. Yes. Yeah, Arizona case. On the other hand, you would think when the Constitution specifically picks and by the way, the dissent, excellent dissent in that case saying when the Constitution says state legislature, it means only the state legislature was written by none other than Chief Justice John Roberts, another example of someone who can't bear to find on, on Trump's behalf and is willing to engage in all kinds of yeah, irrational acrobatics to escape that
2: situation. John, um, he did find in Trump's favor in Hawaii against Trump. I think that was, might have been the last time. Well, it was, but, but <laughs> yeah. I
1: think he, the one and you know. only time. <laughs> let, me, let me just one last point about this Pennsylvania case. So uh, this would be a perfect time to decide it because the election's over. No matter what the court does, it's not going to change the outcome of the presidential election. It will change the number of votes that Trump or Biden got in Pennsylvania or Wisconsin, or but it wouldn't change who the eventual winner is. So this would be a perfect time for the court to decide it. So you know, the, what you don't want to do is have the court decide it in the middle of an election, a hotly contested election, where then the court will be accused of playing politics.
2: There, now I'm done. <laughs> John is a man of great wisdom, uh, because the last point I think is really quite incisive. Mark the time down. Ten years, <laughs> but, but <laughs> ten years, ten years. But a bloody just, decade it took. <laughs> I, I want to stress something else, which is the way in which this whole thing was treated. You could not read an account of what went on during all the litigation, which did not contain the word "baseless" before fraud tra- claims by by Trump. What was so striking about this? is that it missed a fundamental distinction that I think is extremely important. Trump lost many cases, including the last Texas case in the Supreme Court, not on the merits, but on standing grounds or other kinds of procedural ground. He actually won a fair number of cases that were actually decided on the merits. So if you're really trying to do this thing right, what you have to do is to say, okay, everything that happened in Washington uh, when they decided to certify the results of the election— means that it's race-judicated with respect to the case. Uh, But it doesn't mean that a public inquiry about these issues is inappropriate, or in this particular case, an attack through the judicial system for the grounds that John said is out of line. Uh, The reason why I think the majority turned this thing down is not because it was frivolous, but because the complaint was probably correct in terms of what went on. People said, oh, well, there's always an equal protection clause. There's always a Santa clause. But one of the things that was so striking about most of these legislative contexts is they had already taken into account in formulating the rules, the adjustments that needed to be made for COVID. And so this was not a case of the legislatures being generally unresponsive to the way in which they started uh, to behave. Uh, So if you then start to look at this and and assume that you've got a president who's not short on indignation, ego, and self-piety, he looks at these results and he's told by his people, he's actually right on some of these particular cases. That helps explain, why the man has gone absolutely berserk um, on all of these issues. And and so what I would urge is, notwithstanding this case, I would like to see an independent commission uh, take testimony on particular cases from both sides. The strategy to date has been, I think, very mistaken. What happens is the Trump people want to allege quite specific cases, but the only thing they're met with is a general denial that there was no fraud in any of these cases. And then you get elements which are just non-responsive. What you have have to do when you're looking at fraud is to look at the cases where it could make a difference. So when the New York Times reports that, you know, there was no fraud in Washington state where there was you know, a 22-point advantage with respect to uh, Biden over Trump, I don't expect it there. But in Pennsylvania, in Milwaukee, in Atlanta, and so forth, where these things were much closer, you should still look at this stuff. So a congressional investigation is not blocked by the doctrine of race judicator. And I actually urgently think that given this denial of this case. It's even more important to do that. And it would be interesting to see whether or not the job, Biden Justice Department is prepared to undertake what I regard as a very important social function. And on that note, happy anniversary.
0: <laughs> All right. Final question for you guys. This is a jump ball. We've John had we've had a very oh, Don't you're, you're going like to make this. it in sports, you're, Richard. You're going to like too. this question, though. <laughs> we have had a very wide berth over the past 10 years. Not only have we covered, it seems like every inch of constitutional law, we have touched on everything from the legality of licking ice cream in the grocery store to the intellectual property rights for a selfie taken by a monkey to the world of open source wolf kink erotica to whether it's unconstitutional for parking enforcement to chalk your tires. These are all topics we've actually talked about. It's been a journey. Is there any area of the law Or any weird constitutional question of the sort that you might break out once a semester to blow your students' minds that we've never discussed on the show? What what I'm asking, of course, in a roundabout way is, is there any reason for us to continue doing
1: the show? <laughs> hey, by the way, I, I, what would well, be fun was... is to see if we agree with what we said back then. <laughs> because all I mean, of those but... are really interesting, <laughs> uh, John uh, Troy. You know, there's a the lot answer. of stuff. There's a wait. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, like Troy. robots, space. Like there's all kinds of new technologies that are current that we like cloning, all this kind of stuff we haven't got to yet, really.
2: John, fun. There's so much fun. Well, to you're talk missing about the too. essential question. Which is we have voted, particularly you have been deeply remiss on the question how (laughs) Roman theories of interpretation explain the (laughs) United States Constitution, right? We try to get on this and we end up talking only about riparian rights.
1: We should have, you know what, we should have an episode just about Rome.
2: We should not. We, can we, we do not? that? I was okay. an
1: ancient history minor in college. I know a lot about. Really. I feel
2: like
0: that's not true. Well, we got to do it.
2: We got to do it. I mean, we're going to only where, have. Where does five the word "standing" come from? It comes from it's the just, Latin "locus stand on." Right. I mean, it. Where means? does the Roman Senate come from? Place comes, of standing. Uh, well, you know, so like the it. Constitution. Anyhow, I think we the Latin is actually bad. The Roman law. yeah let's do that
1: let's have a special episode that would that would be great like you know it'll have to be in addition to Mm. the regular well i
2: I could give you 10 cases very heavy roman law impulses associated with
1: oh i wish you wouldn't i wish you wouldn't and also (laughs) uh, we're gonna have to do it on zoom with video and we have to all wear togas um, no, but, uh, I still look. have mine around
2: from college somewhere. Oh, okay. I don't doubt that at all. That I, feels like a true college this store. show will go better on the libertarian, <laughs> show, where I will be met with a more tolerant audience. But anyhow, yes, I, John, I'll tell you what, notwithstanding your blindness on an essential topic, <laughs> well, I am still physically capable of doing so. I hope that together we may be able to celebrate in amity. Our 20th anniversary doing this Oh, I'm sure we're going to be doing 20. Richard, you'll just be, what, 55 by then? No, I'll be 88.
1: <laughs> no way. Are you 78 already? Well, I we're will still – you'll, you'll be there at 88. No, we'll, right, we're gonna, there's going to no be an question. artificial intelligence little thing implanted it, in your brain by you
0: now. Let's be honest about this. We don't need the AI. It, Richard is going to outlive both of us. I think we both know this, is, true. this is an actuarial matter. All right, guys,
2: But right, uh, You know what? Long life and happiness to us all. And by the way, we do have. To can I just say this? Live long and prosper. <laughs> uh, people, no, we have, the have to thank. I can't <laughs> see that you are I mean, actually. We have to thank Sp- <laughs> the, the most heroic person in this show has been Scott Good, I was. Gonna,
0: yes. I, I was going to say yes. that. I was going to say it. So uh, actually, as we close, if you indulge me on two matters here in closing, the first is that we occasionally like to let the audience know about our other projects every time one of you guys has a book for instance i'll hopefully someday get that sensation if i don't drink myself to death before i finish my forthcoming book which is good just close the manuscript, just
1: the one on grover cleveland yeah the yes. manuscript, the manuscript or, or is, is close the, not the is cirrhosis. It tiger, or it's on tiger woods's driving habits
0: <laughs> you're just it's it only it because be, yeah. that happened in palos verdes, palos you verdes see it. It. yeah, yeah. You
1: beat me to it
0: i haven't lived there in six years but i'm glad that you mentally indexed that <laughs> So anyway, in terms of these outside projects, I and a partner have a new digital media company. It's called Kite & Key. I'm just going to tease it now because really? we're still a couple of weeks away from launch. I'll say a little more next time. But if you like the tone of this show, I think you'll like this project. So if you want to get on the ground floor. It, sounds, total- like,
1: it sounds like bad booze.
0: <laughs> Thanks, John. You're really healthy. This, this is all totally free. You can follow us on any of your social Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, it's Kite & Key Media on those sites. So think of Ben Franklin, Kite & Key. Those channels oh, are going to start revving up next week, and we'll go live shortly thereafter. We'd love to have you along at Kite & Key Media. What does it do? It, the other, It's a series of videos on public policy, John. I think you will like them. They are, I will say, attuned to your sensibility.
1: The yeah, other, note, You haven't asked Richard and I to be on it, so why would we... No, because they don't put
2: anybody live. I already asked that question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the other note, in closing... <laughs>
0: Per Richard, I think it's only fair, as we bask in our collective glory, that we do—we give our thanks to the Hoover Institution for producing this show, to Ricochet, where it started 10 years ago, and most especially to our producer, Scott Immigrant, who has been with us through every one of these 143 shows, which means 143 instances of trying to make sure that Richard's headset was working properly— it means trying to record John from his She-She San Francisco Squash Club a couple of times. Obviously means dealing with my hysterical pregnancies, but Scott has been with us through it all, and we couldn't do the show
2: without him. So Can we give him. a round of applause?
0: Yes. So our thanks to him. Okay. And of, and of course, our thanks to you, our listeners. Man, has this audience ever been loyal and, and hardcore. Anytime I start feeling down on myself, I just need to go to a Federalist Society event, and all of a sudden... I'm surrounded by people who know more about this show than I do. Although, to be fair, I've been heavily medicated through about 75% of its run.
2: (laughs) No, it's also the case you never have a chance to listen to it because you constantly have to keep us in order.
0: Our audience is the best. You mean so much to us. So thank you. And with that, it just remains for me to remind you to rate the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then,
1: you know what, fellas, I'll let you do the honors. Goodbye and thank you. No, no, he always says the faculty lounge is closed. Richard, So you don't. Even oh, the faculty to
0: our own lounge.
2: Show. The faculty lounge is closed.
0: <laughs> well, actually, I'm, I'm. Okay, we're gonna have to do a reset on this. The line is the faculty lounge is officially closed. So I'm gonna count oh. you guys in. We're gonna we're gonna let people behind the curtain. And in three, two,
2: one. The faculty, the faculty lounge, lounge is officially, officially closed. closed. Hell yeah, it is. <laughs> Okay, are we off the recording?
0: This podcast has been a production
1: of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.